Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Kelly. In today's episode, a recording from an in-store event, Margaret Simons in conversation with Tim Dunlop about his book, Voices of Us. The book is a reflection on the most recent Australian federal election and an analysis of the transformation Australian politics is capable of to become the progressive, open, economically stable and egalitarian nation many of us want it to be. Here's the recording of the event. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings Carlton. It's so lovely to have people back in the store after a little bit of a break over Christmas time. And I'm looking forward to the event tonight. I hope you are as well. My name is Nico. I'm one of the events team here, helping organise events and having wonderful guests like we have here tonight. Before we get going with the event tonight, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that this is sovereign, unceded country. This is Kulin country. And I want to pay my respects to elders, be they of the past, the present, or those yet to come, who will lead us through process of truth-telling and a better future. I'm not going to take up too much of your time because I want to hand over to our esteemed and fantastic guests, but I would briefly like to introduce our interviewer tonight, who's Margaret Simons, um, an esteemed journalist, political writer, has written some very lauded biographies of some of our biggest political figures in Australia's history, actually has another one very, very close to coming out, which you should all check out and investigate on Tanya Flibersek. Thank you so much for coming through, Margaret. Um, I will let you introduce our author, who's written this fantastic book. I would say, for my money, probably the best book about the most recent developments in the the voices of, the teals, the disruption to our established political norm. So thank you very much, and I hope you have a, a really good event tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much for that welcome. It's it's great to be at readings again. Tim was just saying that one doesn't feel a book has been launched until you've done it here, and, and that's true. This is where we do these things in Melbourne. So welcome, everybody, and thanks for being here. Um, what I think of this book is actually in the book, um, a thoughtful, provocative, and historically informed analysis of the rise of the independence in the 2019 federal election. Tim Dunlop charts how we arrived at this moment, the institutional failures and some strengths in media, political parties, and our sense of citizenship, and possible ways forward from here, including reconceived democratic forms. This will be an influential book, so said I, in the blurb. Um, so you can all go home now, you know what it's about. But I thought I'd just recap a little bit of, um, of how I know Tim. I first met him when I was writing a book about the Australian media, and it was before social media, well, almost before social media. The big fault in that book, which was published in 2007, was that it didn't really give enough play to social media. But I interviewed Tim because he was absolutely in the vanguard of blogging and political blogging at the time, which was a new form of media which was challenging traditional journalism. And there was a whole thing going on back then, you know, journalists versus bloggers. Well, now, of course, the journalists have become the bloggers. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe not, there's some parallels there with the rise of the independence. But suffice it to say that Dr Dunlop um, has been um, exploring ideas of participatory democracy and how to improve democracy and participation for many, many years. And he's written on the future of work, on many other topics, but this book, the latest book, is trying to analyse what's going on 
with the most recent federal election and what the nature of the change in the rise of the independence means for our democracy. So welcome, Tim, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, everybody, for coming along. Lovely to see you all. Um, yes, as Margaret said, it doesn't really feel like it's happened until it's happened at Readings in Carlton, so I'm very glad to be here. And thank you again for all coming along. Um, I want to start, Tim, by asking you about something which you say close to the beginning of the book. You say the election result of 21st of May 2022 and the way the independents went about building their support was a significant development in the practice of Australian politics. It delivered us the right to be optimistic. What do you mean? I get asked about this more than any other thing. Why are you so optimistic, people say? Look at the state of everything. <laughs> How could you possibly be positive about this? The book came very late. I actually didn't pitch it to the publisher until after the election of um, 2022. But the reason I did was, one, I'd done work in the area and had spoken to a lot of the people involved in the various voices of movements around Australia. But the main thing was I just wanted to capture that moment because I really thought it was this unique moment in Australian politics where we used the tools that our system makes available to us um, to make what was a pretty fundamental change. I don't think anybody really expected the independents to do as well as they did in that election across the board in the way that they did and really across the country. And I saw it because of the nature of that independent, I, I call it a movement, that might be overstating it, but because of that independent movement, those group of people that the media have subsequently christened the teals, we might talk about that word a bit later, they did it in such a way that I thought was a very positive turn in Australian democracy in that the way they engaged their local communities in the entire process. And that to me seemed worthy of celebration. You know, not uncritical celebration, but worthy of noting and thinking in optimistic terms about. So is it the process more than the individuals which makes you optimistic? Yes, very much so. Having said that, I think we also got pretty lucky with the individuals involved. They're a, they're a pretty um, impressive group of mainly women um, who happened to, well, didn't happen to fall into this, who emerged from this process of community engagement. So it is both, but I think if it's going to have any lasting value, it's the process that matters. Mm. So you also describe it at one point as a contest between the insiders and the outsiders in which the outsiders won. Now, you're not the first one to use those terms, of course. I think in Australian politics, Mark Latham. But, you know, doesn't that signal a potential concern? Because Mark Latham has moved, you know, as we all know, I think, from starting as Labour leader and then has become... One Nation, um, a populist, I suppose one might say, certainly moved radically to the right. Couldn't that happen here too? I mean, couldn't an outsider who's a right-wing populist, possibly conspiracy theorist, also emerge with the support of the outsiders? And who are the outsiders? I, I, again, I think this is something that we need to see the positive side of, is that that process actually mitigates 
against people like Mark Latham emerging from them. People like Latham tend to be imposed on electorates rather than rise up from grassroots support. They, they can, to some extent, rally you know, a certain level of grassroots support, but it's a completely different process. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, an accident that the sorts of candidates that we got that were successful in 2022 emerged from that very particular process. They all call um, the kitchen table conversations. And I, uh, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. And, and this is the other thing that I really kind of want to be positive about with this is I think we did it in a way that no other country has really done. And there are, there are particular reasons why it was Australian democracy was particularly amenable mm. to this kind of community action. But I think it has saved us from the sort of the, the rise of sort of people mm. that you've seen. In, in fact, if you look at it, you know, Clive Palmer was around at the last election and threw hundreds and millions of hundreds of millions of dollars at it and managed to get that dude elected in the Senate. That's about it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think that connection between the quality of the candidates and the grassroots process is um, is really important. Yeah, I want to come back to the sort of history of this, if you like, and the and your analysis of what it is about Australia that has made this possible. But tell us, first of all, given you say it's the process that makes you optimistic, what is that process? Describe it to us. Okay, so the what they call the kitchen table conversation process is a very specific way of engaging with communities. It, it has a history that goes back into the civil rights movement uh, in the United States, particularly obviously with black activists in the United States. But it was picked up and used by Mary Crooks at the Victorian, the Women's Trust, and she used it in Victoria in the mid to late 90s, just as a way of engaging communities to talk about um, issues that actually ended up being very important in the 2022 election. So this whole notion of growing inequality and disengagement from politics and issues around media, etc., etc. So she had instigated this process in that context and then there was a connection was formed between um, what she was doing and what Cathy McGowan and the Voice for Indi group were doing in Indi. And it worked very well up there. And there's a fantastic interview with Mary Crooks, Alana Johnson, that Margot Kingston does on her website where they talk about the actual nature of this process, which I'd really highly recommend everybody have a listen to because it's such a compelling and moving expression of what happened. And... Mary Crooks's argument is that you can't just sit around a kitchen table and talk about politics and everybody gets to have a whinge and then we all go away and, um, well, that was good, you know, we got that off our chest. It's actually a much more organised process than that. So when she's running these things, she makes sure that somebody is there recording, writing down everything that's said. And then the next part of the process is that, that whole, the whole event is written up in detail, recording everything that, as much as you can, that people said. And then the absolutely crucial step in the process is that a copy of that summary, that those minutes, if you like, are distributed to everybody who was there. And she said, it sounds like a really simple thing, but when people get it and they look at it, 
and they see not just their name but the stuff that they were talking about has been registered and heard, she said that is the really powerful moment when people go, oh, somebody's listening to what I'm talking about. Because people's experience with politics, especially, I have to say, in Indi, in that first 2013 election where Cathy McGowan beat Sophie Mirabella, you know, Sophie Mirabella, though, in, in fact, Cathy McGowan says the line that got her involved was Sophie Mirabella going on the TV and saying, people of Indi aren't interested in politics. And she said, okay, we'll see about that. Um, and, and of course, you know, proved her exactly wrong. But it is that process of being heard, listened to, and being seen to be heard and listened to that really engages people and makes all the difference. So that's, that's essentially mm. the process. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, being listened to and heard is not something that I think many Australians feel happens to them. I asked you earlier on, okay, who are the outsiders? Who are the insiders? Well, Australia's, you know, got a, a very well-established kind of establishment that kind of runs everything. <laughs> you know, the, the mining industry, the banking industry, and as Julianne Schultz puts it, playing handmaiden to those powerful institutions is the media. It is an incredibly powerful cabal, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, um, of people who, you know, whose, whose will is generally... And the political parties themselves, I have mm. to say, and I would include Labor in this, are uh, to, to some extent, you know, part of that establishment. And everything happens within, you know, very constrained and, you know, everybody knows the rules, rules of the game, the bureaucracy... Obviously, the federal and state bureaucracies are part of this as well. So, you know, they're the insiders and we, we don't often get a look at how, mm. um, how that sausage is made. Um, we are at the moment, of course, with the um, Robodebt Royal Commission and it's, mm. you know, it's, it's one of the most horrifying things we've seen in Australian political life, the, the extent to which the ostensible job of looking after people on welfare is superseded by loyalty within the bureaucracy and, and, and following the often unspoken but understood diktats of the political class mm. or, the, or, or of the politicians. It's a fairly horrifying revelation, yeah. I think. So let's talk about the media because, you know, I know you love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so most journalists, I think, and of course I am a journalist, would like to think of themselves as in some way serving or representing the public and would kick against this idea that they're part of the political class, if you like, or part of the insiders. What do you think? I mean, it's just a joke. I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that we need a strong media, we need institutionalised media, because you need power to stand against power. It cannot just be a bunch of bloggers doing stuff, you know, because they just do not have the clout to be able to stand up to power. So you do need that, and it does happen, but the basic structure of the media, um, especially, I think, um, a media that's dominated by News Corp, as it is here in the United States and Britain, are a support for the status quo. They're not challenging the status quo. There are certain areas where they will pick up and do that fourth estate role and hold power to account. 
but basically day in and day out. And I think you've even said this in your recent, fairly recent piece, long piece in the in Mianjin, mm-hmm. that they tend to be supportive of the status quo rather than disruptive of it. Mm. And, you know, there's endless examples we could point at from the way things like the Iraq war is covered, the way robo-debt isn't being covered at the moment. You know, all of these, they're making decisions that tend to favour, excuse, hide, mitigate the shortcomings of power. Mm. Well, we could go on all evening about this because it's a debate that Tim and I have had many times before, (laughs) but not the topic of tonight. And yet, despite this, despite what you're really painting as a pretty corrupt and hopeless picture, you say that there are strengths in the notion of Australian citizenship, which are one of the reasons why this has happened. Can you tell us about that? There are definitely strengths in some of our institutional supports for democracy. And it seems to me the the things that really have kind of saved us and given us the possibilities that arise with the rise of this independence movement are compulsory voting, preferential voting and the existence of the Australian Electoral Commission. These three things give us a leg up in a way that, say, Britain and the United States don't have where electoral boundaries are set by, well, especially in America, it's set at state level by the party that is in control of the state house, which is in a majority of the United States, the Republican Party. And they're just completely shameless in how they draw the boundaries to their own advantage. Compulsory voting means we can't be ignored in the same, not, not just that we can't be ignored in the same way that certain sections of American British society are routinely ignored by politicians, but we can't be corralled out of voting in the same way that they can through things like, you know, identification pushes and mm. um, stuff like that, all the other tricks that they play to stop people from voting. Barack Obama said about American democracy that it's become more about people in government choosing who votes for for them rather than the people who are voting choosing who's going to represent them. It it really got to that stage and I think that's true. But those three things that I named here um, have really stopped that happening to the same extent. It, it, It still happens. One of the things that's emerged from the recent Victorian state election is a relatively large number of people, especially in Labor seats, um, just didn't vote Mm. at the last election. So even even with compulsory voting, I think it was down to 90% in a lot of those seats, which is very low for Australia. Yeah. So I want to um, challenge you a little bit on what you clearly believe is a fundamental change in the way that politics is done in Australia. And you referenced the Victorian election. The independents didn't do so well in the Victorian election. Does that run counter to your idea that this is a fundamental change? No, I don't think it does. They, they did OK. And, and the nature of the system is, even if everything sort of comes together, it doesn't necessarily translate into seats. It depends how the preferences break. And, mm. you know, there are, there are unknowable 
unknowns in amongst all of this. Um, and I think that kind of happened in Victoria. I think there were other issues in Victoria. I think the independence came into the game a bit too late. And one of the things about the kitchen table approach is that it does take time. You really need to be on the ground for probably a couple of years in advance. And I don't think any of the independents at state level had that sort of runway into the election. Having said that, some of them did pretty well, you know, mm. on the two candidate preferred vote, they were up 48, 49% of the vote. So mm. it's not like they were completely wiped out. I think New South Wales will be kind of a more interesting test because New South Wales has had a longer experience with this sort of process of independence coming up, I think. The candidates who are involved have been at it for longer. They've had longer to prepare and to talk to their communities and they seem to be doing a pretty good job of that. But they also come up against something that doesn't happen in Victoria, which is optional preferential voting. And no one quite knows how that's going to play out in New South Wales. So you don't actually have to distribute your preferences on your... You can just put a one. You know, they'd have to pick up more primary votes, you would think, under that system to get themselves elected. So we'll see. It's interesting. So another, another argument against the idea that we're seeing a fundamental change is that there are an awful lot of Labor, habitual Labor voters, even Labor Party members, who, living in electorates where they knew Labor wouldn't be elected, voted strategically and even campaigned on behalf of, say... I mean, I've got friends who campaigned for Zoe Daniels who voted Labor all their life. <laughs> um, so what do, you, what do you think about that? Was it purely because there was that hunger for a change of government and some strategic voting in certain electorates? Yeah, the, there was definitely strategic voting. There was definitely hunger for some change. I think the really important point is that people actually had a viable alternative, that there were actually candidates that they trusted to give their vote to in a way that maybe haven't, hadn't happened at that scale before. The strategic voting thing I think is true, but it sort of bugs me a little bit when journalists go on, go on about... Strategic voting comes up a lot, and it's certainly true people voted strategically, but I think what happened in May 2022 was a lot more positive than that. I think people were... They weren't just voting to get rid of someone. They were voting positively to get a particular candidate. Um, having said that, the you know, there was definitely, let's get rid of Tony Abbott. I think there was definitely a let's get rid of Josh Frydenberg push in those yeah. Warringah and Kuyong, respectively. Um, so, you know, that plays a part. But, you know, there was also... Helen Haynes was re-elected in Indi, so that's twice for Cathy McGowan, now twice for Helen Haynes. Zali Steger was re-elected in 2022. Mm. It wasn't her first time. So it wasn't just strategic voting. There was, there was a lot of positive, we actually want this change, I think. And one of the things you point out is that for the first time, we have a huge minority of people not voting for either of the two main political parties. I, I, and to me, that's, that's the key thing, mm. is it isn't so much that, you know, in 2022 we've got a bunch of teal independents elected in different electorates. I think the important thing is that over the last 30 years there's been a shift away from the major parties and 2022 was significant because it was the first time ever that um, more than 30% of people voted first preference for someone other than Labor and the, and the coalition. 
um, and I don't think that's changing. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that we now have this kind of, um, I call it the elevated middle or the, you know, this floating 30% of voters who, it's, it's not sort of swing voters in the traditional sense that we've talked about swing voters, um, who can be won over by, you know, a, a politician or a party saying X, Y and Z and winning their vote. It's not swing voters in the same way. It's this floating 30% that will attach somewhere other than the major parties. They're looking for somewhere to land. And at, in 2022, at the federal level, um, a lot of them landed on mm. those, uh, those independent candidates. Quite a few of them landed on the Greens as well, you know, they increased their numbers in the lower house quite substantially as well. Um, and the, the, Greens are, oh, the Greens are kind of proof of the um, kind of the basic thesis, I think, in that they didn't engage in exactly the same kitchen table sorts of conversations, but they did something very similar with their door knocking and that had happened over years and years, particularly in Brisbane. Yes, I agree with that. It is partly, though, about the changing nature of the Liberal Party specifically, isn't it? In, at least in terms of 2022. If we imagine that the Liberal Party came up with a respectable position on climate change and solved its woman problem, and I can see you looking <laughs> extremely sceptical, but I would just point out that um, Ku Yong was Petro Giorgio's seat. Um, Ian McPhee used to represent the seat now represented by Zoe Daniel. Um, you know, the Liberal Party has changed a lot since those guys were there. We're talking about, you know, Malcolm Fraser Liberals, if you like. So, you know, the party does change, has changed. If we assume in maybe 10, 15 years that the Liberal Party has changed, become more representative of women, progressive on, more progressive on climate change, would all those people then happily go back? Would even some of the so-called teals, and I want to talk about that term in a minute, um, would they join the Liberal Party? Um, I think that would be very foolish, just to answer that last part <laughs> first, to do that. Um, yeah, if we played the fantasy game and the Liberals <laughs> did all that, um, maybe, maybe they win them back. I don't think the Liberals are going to do that. I think um, the, one, one of the things that comes out of 2022 is we need to do a complete reassessment um, of the role John Howard has played, um, not just in Australian politics, but in the internal politics of the Liberal Party. And, and he's very clever um, getting rid of the kind of the, the soft centre of his party, the so-called wets in his party, which seemed genius at the time, is looking a lot less genius now. Um, it's, it's left a, um, a big hole in their public appeal, I think, I think the times have changed in such a way um, that it's, it's left them without that appeal. Um, there are other fairly severe schisms within the Liberal Party. You know, you could, you could argue at the moment that they are actually already a split party. Um, a lot of what Peter Dutton's doing at the moment isn't really responding to, you know, the issues at the moment, like the voice to Parliament, for instance. It's about you know, trying to keep his party together and trying to keep his job um, as much as it is anything else. Mm. So um, I, I, I don't think they're going to do it. Um, I don't know what that means exactly. I, it's, it's hard to see um, capital leaving themselves unrepresented um, in Australian politics. So something else has to emerge, whether it's a, a new party, a 
a formally split Liberal Party that splits between that kind of centre-right and very far-right that they currently have within their ranks, um, where the Nationals fit in all that. The Nationals are an interesting... They didn't lose any seats at the last election, but they had a lot of skin taken off them in the last election. I think they're very vulnerable at the next election. I was talking to some people from Indi, actually, um, a couple of days ago. They're, they're pretty convinced that um, nationals are going to be losing seats around the regional areas uh, at the next election, that they're taking water, basically. You know, this is all very good news for Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party, I think. They, they can... Um, secure a couple of terms of government out of this because I, I really don't think the Liberal Party is going to get the act together. There's just too many internal divisions that they can't paper over. Mm. Although, you know, if we think back to the creation of the Liberal Party when Menzies brought a heap of independent groups, including a very powerful women's political movement together to create the Liberal Party, they were at least as divided before then, weren't they? Yes, and they, they rallied around that you know, it was essentially the IPA that created the Liberal Party um, and they rallied around that free enterprise, anti-communist vibe that happened. Um, it was very much um, an anti-Labor Party um, and as times have changed um, over the last, you know, 60 years, um, Labor's less of a Labor Party, which means the raison d'etre for the Liberal Party is also undermined um, as well. So Menzies invited a powerful group of women in, mm. but as administrators and fundraisers, not as candidates. So it was a huge difference, I think, to, to what's happening now. So, so yeah, I mean, um, and, and this is the thing, this is what political parties are. They're a way of managing um, differences of opinion, you know, and taking it out, taking those arguments out of the public sphere and having them behind closed doors and then presenting a united face. You know, that's essentially what a party is. But I think the Liberal Party have got to the point where it's, it, it's not functioning mm. in, in that way. Some people, including Dutton, Frydenberg and so on, have said the Teals, and this is the moment to talk about that term, are in fact a political party. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, no, I, 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 yeah. What, 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 why do you think that they say that? Why do I think they yeah, say what, that? Yeah, <laughs> what, what, what's your understanding of that argument? Why oh, well, are I they think, a party? Um, no, I don't think they are a party either. But um, I think that why do they say that? Because it suits them, obviously. But to the extent <laughs> yeah, that okay. they are a group sharing similar policies and so on, it could be said in obviously sharing common funders as well, a common support base once you get above the electorate level. Yeah. You know, the accusation can be made. Yeah. So I suppose what I'm asking you is are they one group or are there big differences between them? Yeah, I'm, my impression is that there are big differences between them that... Um, Monique Ryan is a very different kettle of fish to, say, Allegra Spender. Right-wing and not right-wing. Okay. <laughs> 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 something, something like that. In this context, though, what does that mean? What, what's the difference between left-wing and right-wing? I, I think... Um, I think Monique Ryan is, for instance, a lot less anti-union than mm -hmm. Allegra Spender is. I'd say Monique Ryan's more open to movement on um, the stage... Sorry, tax cuts than Allegra Spender is, mm -hmm. less wedded to, you know, business being at the centre of everything um, than uh, Allegra Spender is. This mm -hmm. is just 
my impression on that. So I, I would say they're the they're kind of pretty fundamental differences, mm. actually. But to an, to answer the question about whether they're a party or not, I think I think they can operate in a party-like way behind the scenes. Um, as you probably all know, you know, Anthony Albanese cut their staff allocations, staffing allocations, almost as the first thing he did as Prime Minister. So it puts a lot of pressure on them in terms of staying across legislation and stuff. And they can probably divide that up amongst themselves to, to the extent that they trust each other so that, you know, one of them can be in charge of... Uh, you know, you do all the research on topic A and I'll do all the research on topic B and then we'll swap notes um, and we can kind of trust each other in, in that role so that we don't have to be across everything in that way. But I, I think they would be really foolish to formalise that in any way because I think their value as candidates is precisely the fact that they're not part of a party. I think part of what people are reacting to in voting for the independence is it is a vote against parties and all the baggage that comes with parties. And one of the things I argue in the book is that traditionally Australians have been reasonably happy with the, you know, basically the two-party system that we've had um, because it has brought a, a certain level of stability um, to our politics and I think we like that. But I think what over, particularly over the term of the most recent Liberal government, um, what people came to realise is that the flip side of stability is corruption. So the longer that you have those institutional um, blocks like political parties there um, with their fingers in every pie, the more open you are to corruption. And so bringing in um, a more powerful crossbench um, is one way of countering that within the system. Hmm. The crossbench itself could become corrupt, though. Yeah, sure. Yes, it could. It could? <laughs> OK. How do you think they're going? The, the independents? Mm. Um, look pretty well. I think they're doing some... I, th I think it's sort of changed the nature of how politics happens. Even at the state level with none elected, I think you can say the presence of the independents is having an effect on the sorts of issues that are front and centre in the New South Wales state election. I think the the federal independents... We didn't get onto the word teal either, it just... Because no, no. I was about to use it. Well, um, you, the, you can, the, the, the federal teals... You can pick that up any time you like. OK. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think they're doing about as well as you could hope. Um, and, and one of the things that's really interested me... And, again, this is something I argue towards the end of the book, that if we're going to capitalise on this moment and get some value out of it, then what happened in those lovely, leafy, liberal suburbs with the independents has to spread out into, um, you know, other demographics, poorer demographics, basically. And that the tails have to have a role mm. in doing that. They can't pull up the ladder behind them. They have to make their expertise in community engagement available to these other uh, electorates who, don't, who aren't as well-resourced as they are. Because so it's interesting that Sophie Scomps and Kylie Tink 
from New South Wales um, flew out to out into that regional yes. area, Lincoln Plains, is that what it's yes. called? Where the fracking is mm. happening with Santos, et cetera, et cetera. You know, got a pretty good reception working out there and, and you know, kind of, in other words, they, they moved outside their yeah. immediate electorate. Because I think this is, this is the weakness with the independence thing and that whole community thing is that unless it expands and is institutionalised in other ways, then you run up against the problem that... Um, if, if all they ever do is honour what their community wants, then the rest of Australia might suffer because what's good for Wentworth isn't necessarily good for Australia on any number of issues that you want to think about. So I think they have to broad... And, and I think they have a... Once you're elected to Parliament, you represent everyone. You represent the country. You don't just represent your community. But, you know, one of their messages was, you know, I will represent you. And I, I, in yes. one of the interviews I did, I raised this with uh, Allegra Spender, you know, are you in favour of tax reform, you know, abolishing negative gearing? Pretty hard in Wentworth, yeah. <laughs> where yeah. everybody has at least one investment property. Yeah. I, no, I think, mm. that, I think that's absolutely right. No one said it would be easy. But uh, <laughs> um, I think they have to find their issues where they can reach out beyond that immediate community because I think that's the nature of um, political representation once you're in the parliament. But just to finish very quickly, um, I don't really like the word tales. It, it's a bit of a media concoction. Um, it does sort of lend a similarity to them that I don't think they actually have. Um, I do use it myself occasionally as a shorthand. But when, when, I'm, when I use it, I think I actually just mean... Victorian seats mm. and probably Warringah and McKellar. Yeah. That's, that's probably what I mean by that. Maybe Kylie Tink. Well, Kylie, of course, was uh, Tink Pink. She was pink, <laughs> Not yeah. teal at all. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, yeah, I, th I think it probably hides as much as it reveals. So it's, it's, it's not really a, a great form of words to use. Um, community independence is more of a mouthful, but I think it's a more accurate mm. designation. On that note, seriously speaking, this is an important book. It's an influential book. I don't agree with every word in the book, but it's an incredibly provocative and important read, and so I encourage you all to buy it tonight. Continue the debate among yourself in the best teal tradition. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks a lot. Voices of Us is available from all the reading stores, as well as from our website, where you can find previous episodes of the Readings Podcast, and all sorts of recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.